Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Oh, nice. That's Roll so rad. Take one. Is it going to be all right? Hello and welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. Oh, and on this show, we've got something for everybody. We'll be talking to Liz Potter, whose zines basically put the rest of us to shame. Like, really sad, sad shame. We'll talk a bit about the Shirley card and what it meant to not just color film, but to people of color. There's also a zine review and the answering machine to get through. But first, Vanya, how the hell are you? (laughs) Uh, You know... Back to business. It seems like everything's just kind of going. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, I do not. I'm still laid off. <laughs> well, okay, so I'm not, I'm still working. I realize that my back doesn't hurt. You know how okay. that works? It's like you don't even realize it, it doesn't hurt anymore because you're just not complaining. You're like, oh, wait, hold on. <laughs> I feel better. It's like hiccups. Exactly. <laughs> That's been really nice. I'm glad that my back doesn't hurt. So I've been out shooting um, a little bit here and there. Not really anything specific. Just kind of getting nice and comfortable with the Pentax 645 water housing and the new 4x5 that I kind of acquired around my birthday. (laughs) (laughs) This was a birthday treat to yourself. Yes, it was. What what is this new 4x5? It's a Graflex Super D. (laughs) Ooh. Now, this is a camera that we've both been lusting after for a long, long time. Yes. And you got one. Yeah, it was a really good deal, uh, mostly because it has the old back on it. But the person that had it had a bunch of holders that came with it. And I figured, fuck it, doing this. Didn't look back and still do not regret this decision. It is literally the best 4x5 camera ever, hands down. I'm sorry. They're really expensive right now. I don't know if they'll ever go down, people. But if you ever get a chance to try one, I highly recommend it. (laughs) Yeah. I've seen some of the pictures you've taken with it, and they're really, really fun. They're really good. Yeah, Yeah. I kind of feel like it just clicks with me. Something about this camera works with the way that I want to shoot. So do you think this is kind of the new it camera? I would say so. Yeah, I think so. We were talking last week or two weeks ago about like what the new it camera was. and We couldn't come up with one. But do you think this was it? I think it is. I think it might be. Yeah, that sucks. (laughs) (laughs) It does. So I've taken it out and shot. I met up with Derek at Cult of Cameras in Hermosa to take some shots, which was really, really fun. I ended up bringing some film and we took a little quick walk before he had to drive up to San Francisco. He's kind of bouncing around doing some traveling. Nice. So that was really, really cool. And I realized, hey, like I would really like to uh, meet up and shoot with people more often. It's a ton of fun. And I'm hoping that with things happening with the COVID shots and all that stuff, hopefully things will just like progressively get better from here oh, on. Yeah. We'll see. Crossing my fingers. I'm also probably going to finish my zine at some point. <laughs> oh, this is like the third or fourth episode in a row that you've said that. I know. I'm sorry. So it's done. I just have to write in it. And that's kind of like a really important part. And I just haven't done it yet. So I will try to <laughs> get that <laughs> out soon. 
I promise. Yeah. Now you did write something. You just forgot to save it, and then you turned off your computer, and it was gone. Yep. Can you believe it? <laughs> yes. Yes, I can. <laughs> okay. So how the hell have you been? Well, my week has thus far been filled by, with like, making a buttload of ECN2 kits. Now, I can't exactly say why, but I do have a lot of ECN2 kits to sell right now. Like a lot. <laughs> so if you're interested in trying this whole color development thing, hey, you, you could do worse than the ECN2 kits. So I've also been laying out the third issue of In This Land, which will come out probably in early March. I'm done with it. I'm just kind of just waiting around for the right time. I really, really like this one. You've seen it, haven't you? Mm-hmm. What, will you please tell me that you like it as well? <laughs> oh my gosh, I absolutely adore it. Thank you so much. I've also started work on another series where I'm shooting 70-year-old Ansco 4x5 sheets. I've gotten my, I've got a collection right now of Ansco 4x5 boxes of filled like new boxes from the How 50s many boxes and 60s. so far? I think it's 11. Okay. And so that's a lot of film and that's a lot of books, but I don't know if that's actually going to, you know, none of them could work. And so what I'm doing with the first one is I'm doing basically a book. It's going to be perfect bound. It's going to be not very zine-like. And I think I'm just going to say fuck it and call it a book. There's that weird gray area where if you're a certain kind of person, you insist that that's not a book. It's still a zine. And if you're another kind of person, you insist that it is a book and not a zine. And so I think I'm the latter where I'm just going to say fuck it, it's a book. And if you want to call it a zine, I don't really care. You can do that if you want to. This is not a hill I'm going to die on. It's a stupid (laughs) argument. But this will not just be like a photography project. It'll also be a writing project. And I'm really excited to be writing again. It feels, I really missed it. I've really, really missed it. And I'm doing some research for stuff with like, you know, the pictures in there. They're researching the history with old maps and old newspapers. And I'm back to doing what I used to do. And I really, really missed it. Excuse me. It's not like we like write for a podcast or anything. No, but like for <laughs> for like individual photos. You know, this is real like stuff, you know, my passion. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, didn't wow. mean to say that. Oh, God. But anyway... <laughs> I've also been doing reshoots for the Seattle Winter Project. I'm kind of done with that. I'm just, you know, kind of picking up some things here and there because that's going to be, I'm not sure what's going to happen with that, but hopefully, probably a zine, probably another In This Land. And it probably won't come out for a while because I need to sit on it for a little bit. Well, you're doing one a month, right? With the third release of In This Land, I'm stopping In This Land for a little bit. And I'm going to focus on some other zines I want to put out. (laughs) <laughs> wow. And then I'm going to go back to In This Land. You're an animal. I may not return to In This Land till after summer. It will depend. We'll, we'll have to see where that goes. But I also, you got your, your Super D camera. Yes. And I got a camera as well that's kind of like, it's very similar to the Super D in that it has a lens and a focal plane shutter. Yes. And it's it's called an RB Cyclist. It was from Fulmer and Schwing, I think. Schwing? Schwing! Yeah, oh, I know. They were Graflex before it became Graflex. It's not like Fulmer and Schwing were a thing, and then Kodak bought them, and then I think the government said, Kodak, you own too many things, and Kodak said, well, here, Graflex can be its own thing. And so I think that's <laughs> what that is. So it happened in that era. Okay. And I really like it. They didn't usually come with a focal plane shutter, and like you, I think I'm kind of in love with focal plane shutters. Like yeah. The big, the big, dumb curtain ones. Yeah. They, in 1807, and even before that, they could get one one-thousandth of a second on their shutter. 
That's that's amazing. See, I'm like on the opposite side where I'm like, I'm getting shots at like one thirtieth of a second and oh, I'm nailing sure. them. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> like handheld too. It's ridiculous. Oh, it, yeah, of course. You can do that with those as well. No, this isn't a handheld. This is, you know, for a tripod. It was called the RB Cyclist because it was small enough to be carried by a person on a bicycle. And Whatever. while it's <laughs> technically true, that's a dumb thing to do with it. So I've just been taking out here and there, and I think I'm in like with it. We'll see if I love it. Okay. Yeah, that works. <laughs> Did your answering machine have like the fake, like plastic wood yeah, kind I, of they cover? They were legally required to have fake plastic wood. Yeah, I had that. a clock like that. My parents had a car like that too. So every episode we ask our listeners to call in and answer the question that we pose to them. So Vanya, what <laughs> is the answering machine question this time around? What is the most important thing for you to remember when you're shooting? What a great question. I think it we've really got is. some really <laughs> wonderful answers from a bunch of dudes. So let's begin. Push the button. Hello, no one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Hey, Eric and Vanya. This is Mina again from Sydney, Australia. Uh, I'm on Instagram as Crook and Flail. The one thing I'd have to remind myself when I shoot is that while not every shot is going to be a keeper, uh, it's better to have taken the shot and learned something from the result than not bothered to take it and wondered what could have been. Hmm. Yeah, this is the it's better to have loved and lost than to never have loved at all philosophy of photography. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> I like it. And he's he's right. If if you don't go for it, then you'll never know. If I'm sure of one thing, it's that I'm going to forget something. So, for example, I just did two shoots in a row where I wanted to bring a flash for the first time in forever. And the first time I forgot the remote. And this last time I forgot a flash meter, so I had to guess my exposure, which worked out okay. So I just basically try to remember to bring the camera and film and I'll work out the rest because I'm going to forget something. For example, I just forgot my name. <laughs> that was Jamie Maldonado at Jamie M Photo on Instagram. <laughs> I'm basically like Jamie. I would be really? a terrible assistant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could see that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I mean, I would love to shoot with Jamie, but I'm relying on him to bring the light meter because I already forgot mine. <laughs> we constantly, yeah, forget light meters. Ah, oh, the worst. Hello, Vanya and Eric. This is Anthony Rue. I'm Kino Pravda over on Instagram. And even though I like to think that I have a good memory and can recall lyrics to post-punk songs that I haven't listened to in 30 years, uh, I am terrible about remembering what film I've loaded into my cameras. Uh, like many people, I've got bulk-loaded film from decades across the uh, spectrum with uh, 25 ISO all the way up to 1600 ISO. Often I'll load up a camera and walk away, come back a week later, and have no idea at all what I'm shooting. Uh, I have a solution for this, but I still don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> what is your solution? Washi tape. Yep. Yeah, get a little little piece of washi tape. It's It kind of 
it's easy to stick on a camera and it's easy to peel off a camera without getting it all sticky. And then you can just write down all the information that you need on that little piece of washi tape. Then you transfer it onto the film canister and then transfer it to the developing tank and transfer it back onto little negative sheets if you wanted to. It's great, but it's only good when you actually do it. <laughs> yeah, you have to do it. And how I make sure that I do it is when I buy film, I put the washi tape with the the, the emulsion written on it on the film canister right from the start. So when I Smart. pull it out of my fridge, that washi tape's already there. And so I just, I put the film in the camera. I take the washi tape off of whatever it was on, slap it on the camera and we're good to go. And I never, ever wonder like, what film is in this camera? It's not a problem for me. And if I don't know any lyrics to a post-punk song, I just ask Eric and he'll tell me. He'll remember. <laughs> <laughs> it's always Mission of Burma. So I need to disabuse myself of the notion that if I always have my camera with me, at some point the light will be perfect or something will catch my eye and I will stop whatever I'm doing or pull over or whatever and take an inspired image. When in fact my life is just not really conducive to that kind of artistic process right now and when things like that do happen the pictures often turn out kind of boring. So what I need to keep in mind is to make time to go to a place and pay attention to my surroundings with the goal of turning that experience into at least a couple of images. I think sometimes, you know, we work or we have other things to do and we can't stop and just take a picture every time we want. But coming back to a place like, you know, I do it, I pin places all the time with the intention of wanting to shoot it and and kind of really discovering the place and like, when's a good time to go? And when's the light going to be good the next time you go? All these things are things that you can do without actually taking any photographs maybe this time around, but at some point, you know, to inspire you to revisit a place. Is there film in my camera? Or, shoot, what film is in my camera? <laughs> yep. <laughs> I, I, I think he's asking us. <laughs> I would say, like, shoot it at 200. <laughs> Hope for the best. I enjoy that he didn't even stop walking to leave the message. He was just like, I'm going to do this now. Yeah. Thank you, Brandon. <laughs> Hi, this is Jesse at JRenew from Instagram. I think the thing that I try to remember the most when shooting is to slow down. I get a lot of people here in Philly who, when they see you with a camera, want to know what you're doing and what, who do you work for and all of that stuff, and they get pretty aggro. So it's easy to get in the rhythm of just taking the shot, hurrying up, and walking away. But the truth is, there's no real outcome to them getting aggro. You can just explain what's going on, and I found that getting them interested in the camera that I'm using or what I'm doing usually negates any kind of a aggressive problems. And, you know, I walk around now with like a 4x5 camera or a Mamiya C3 or something, and that usually sparks some people's curiosity once they get over the initial aggression. Anyway, thanks. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> uh, having spent quite a bit of time in Philly, yes, people there are just alarmingly aggressive about everything. <laughs> it's intense. I mean, these are the fans, like the sports fans, that throw batteries at people. <laughs> what the hell philly <laughs> people are very aggressive in philly and it doesn't mean they're not nice it's just that 
I, I don't know. It's a very rough town. When I'm when I'm in Seattle shooting, you have that same problem, except it's not aggression, it's passive aggression. And so people will not come up to you, but will look at you and judge you silently while you're taking a picture. And then when you're done, <laughs> just walk away shaking their heads, very unhappy that you're doing whatever it is that they, that they think yeah, you're that doing. Yeah, that is even worse, honestly. <laughs> it kind of is, But yeah. as film photographers, we are lucky because we have unusual gear usually. So yeah. that gets people interested. Like Jesse said, usually you can spark conversation with just with the equipment that you have. So that kind of loosens people up and gets people a little bit like, okay. Hey, what up? It's Nick, aka Count Snackula. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Be mindful of your film stock and take it into account when choosing your subjects. Also, if you shoot aperture priority like I like to do, remember to actually check your aperture settings. And finally, don't forget to turn around once in a while, because the best shot might be waiting right behind you. Turn around. Every now and then I feel a little bit lonely. <laughs> I have to apologize to Ancillary Adams, who prior to this had my favorite Instagram name. That is now <laughs> held by Count Snackula. <laughs> Sorry, yes. but I've got a feeling that you'll understand. It's Count fucking Snackula. <laughs> it is, yes. Please turn around. This is Alan being Alan on Instagram. The most important thing for me to remember when I'm shooting is that ultimately I'm not in control and that uh, the results are not my business. I have to let go of all my expectations and anything that I think I know about and wait until I get the film back to make a decision about what it is I'm shooting. I go through that a lot, the waiting to get the film back to, I mean, it's kind of my, my default now. It's like, like if I'm not shooting and somebody asks, oh, how'd the shoot go? I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> There's absolutely no way for me to know that. I had fun, <laughs> but I have no idea what the pictures are going to look like. I don't know if that means I'm a bad photographer or I'm just realistic and not trying to pretend that I'm a good photographer. But when I take the picture, I'm like, I don't know. It may have worked. I may have left the lens cap on. There's literally no way for me to know this. I try to remember that desire is the root of suffering, and film photography may not be about perfectly imposing your will. It's a piecemeal gratification, and you have to learn to love the whole process. And once you do, things like checking the light, or your settings, knowing where they are, uh, becomes part of the zen of it. And when you mess that up, sometimes something good comes out of that too. It may take just as long to learn to love a photo as it did to get it developed. What do you think of that? Like, having to sit on a photo before you love it? Yeah. Yeah. I had film in a camera and I called it marinating. <laughs> it was just <laughs> marinating for a year in there, just hanging out. I don't know. I, I like went to like a swap meet and just took a couple pictures and I figured that I would wait a year that I would develop it. I think that we just like are so consumed with like instant gratification, everything, everything has to be faster and new and like smartphones and digital and film like is not really like that, but it can be like I definitely come home and develop film that I shot that day. I do that oh, I a lot. That. Yeah, I think just sitting on things is as long as it's, you know, obviously you're taking care of it um, and you're not leaving it in the you know hot sun or something. I think it's a good idea. I think so. Oh, we got one more. Shoot into the light. What? what Shoot into the light. Be here one more time. Go into the light. Oh, okay. There we go. That does make sense. Well, thanks everybody for calling in. We really, really appreciate it. So 
I guess it's probably time for us to answer this ourselves. Vanya, do you, do you want to go first? What, uh, what do you need to not forget or whatever the question was? I love this and that's why I'm doing it. Wait, that's it? Yep. So when you're out there and it's like a whole big panic, because I've, I've, I'm on the phone with you often when you're shooting. Yes. And sometimes you get very frustrated, like hilariously so. Yeah, I have those moments. If I could be on like one of those like TLC shows where it's like, it's just all beeps. <laughs> it's like dudes talking, but it's all beep, 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 beep. Oh, 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 because of the cursing. <laughs> what are you talking about? Sometimes I get a little frustrated and it's not that serious. And I think just stepping back and just going like, I'm doing this because I love doing this. Sure. Yeah. Kind of puts me back in a little bit more of a calmer place. I think sometimes we get wrapped up with like, you forgot your light meter or the film is something happened with the film or the back, you know, opened up. I've I've had that happen with the RB a few times where like just the back opens up and exposes the film or you know, yeah. little things happen and you can't just <laughs> always have a perfect shooting experience. And I love it. Yeah. I love it. I absolutely love it. Oh. <laughs> I do. That's so sweet. I love it so much. I have a podcast to talk about it. <laughs> and it's still not enough. I still literally explode film words on everybody. I feel so bad for I try not to talk to anybody about it. But oh, yeah, it's bad. I got it real bad. How about you? Give me your answer. I I need to remember to learn from my mistakes because I make a lot of mistakes. I just don't really learn from them. Sometimes I keep making like the same mistakes over and over. And maybe it's just how I work, but I would really like to not do that. So if I see that I'm doing something wrong, I really need to consciously take time out of my day and fix it and make sure that I don't do it that way again. So like I keep really meticulous notes. I, I mark the shots in the notebook like that I fuck up. I put a, a big FU in there, which is nice, <laughs> which is to me. <laughs> but you know, I should probably take the time to explain in the notes like how I fucked up. Like what did I do wrong? Yeah. You know? I've been shooting a lot of four by five, and almost always my mistake is that I leave the shutter open. Cause when you focus a four by five view camera, you have to look through the ground glass, and for that you have to open the shutter. And there's a little a switch on most lenses that you can open the shutter. And I always forget to close that. Obviously not always, because I have some photos, but I often <laughs> forget to close that and I will leave it open. I'll put the f- the film holder in. I'll pull the dark slide. And then you go, fuck. <laughs> when it's an like a centimeter, a millimeter up, I'll remember, fuck. <laughs> and it's gone and, you, and you, you blew the shot. So I need to remember not to do that. Oh, I've I've seen you. You it, Like you think I get upset. I've seen you get like super. He is drama queen. Oh, come on. <laughs> okay. I don't know if I'm a drama queen about it, but... I'm definitely not happy with it. I'm not happy with myself. It's not that I'm like, I just get, ah, fuck everything. No. But it's just like, how am I still making this mistake? <laughs> how is that possible that I'm still making this very specific mistake that I've been making for like four years now, continually, every time I go out and shoot? I And it's like, oh, work it into your system. It is in my system. You can only shoot four by five in so many ways. <laughs> It's not like I'm just like haphazardly throwing things around. I'm just not learning. And that's what I need to remember. I need to remember to learn. Always. Always remember to learn. And anything you do, always remember to learn and have fun learning. There. <laughs> Yay! Okay, so is that your answer? That's my answer. Okay. All right. Good job, Come on, get 
Yo, what up my dudes? Tiff and Sinclair dropping in to keep you company while Eric and Vanya rendezvous at an undisclosed location to do a bit of digging into Kodak's history with an individual who only wishes to be known as Roy G. Bibb. In the meantime, I'd like for all of you to get to know me a bit more, and what better place to start than by telling you about the time I committed the crime of all crimes. That's right, shooting portraits on Ektar 100. In my defense, I was new to the film photography world, and my latest acquisition, the Mamiya RB67, had not only left me hungry for a proper meal, but also for shooting portraits. In my eagerness to satiate both my growling stomach and my appetite for hammering out some killer 6x7 portraits, I headed down to my local camera shop and kindly asked the gentleman at the counter to sort all the 120 color negative film he had on hand based on price from low to high. Don't judge me, I wanted to have enough left in the bank to treat myself to a jelly donut after what I so naively thought was going to be the most successful portrait shoot. So I grabbed the cheapest roll of film which so happened to be Ektar and I skedaddled on out of there. I met up with an old pal of mine at the location of his choosing, which happened to be a questionable alleyway. The area was rather isolated and hidden from foot traffic. It also had a funky smell to it. Definitely a place where the sound of an RB67 going off might awaken some type of alley monster. But the lighting was prime. I'm talking golden hour prime. So we stayed and hoped for the best. We fired off a few shots of him posing in front of a dumpster because he wanted that grungy aesthetic. Looking back, I now see the dumpster was an omen for how these images would turn out. Fast forward to me getting the results back, and yikes, the colors were definitely off. My friend's face had an amplified red cast to it, which was made ever more apparent on the frames where he was posed in front of a brick wall. Rookie mistake, I know. After a bit of research and enduring some mild teasing from my film nerd friends, I quickly learned that Ektar produces some intense hues that may not do skin tones justice, but are very much adequate for landscape photography. I had to make a substantial amount of color adjustments in Lightroom to get the tones just right, but even then, I wasn't satisfied with the results as a whole. Interestingly enough, that was the first time I learned that, when in doubt, monochrome it out, which is my way of saying, just convert to black and white. I know the purists out there are cringing at the sound of this, but in the end, I had to deliver images some way somehow, and if that meant breaking a few unspoken rules, I was willing to put my non-existent reputation on the line. In any case, I learned the hard way that you're better off shilling out some extra schmeckles for Kodak's portrait line of film when it comes down to taking pictures of the human of your choosing. Full disclosure, this was my experience with Ektar and portraits. In the hands of a more capable photographer, this film stock produces some epic results, especially when paired with a neutral background, or if you want to make an accessory on your subject stand out. Say, like, flowers in their hair? Anyways, looks like Vanya and Eric are back. One of them is lugging a Nikodos, the other is perpetually covered in cat hair, and I think I see a Shirley card. Okay, looks like Roy did not hold back on that history lesson. You're gonna want to stick around for that one. I'm gonna let them take over for now. I think they're going to give our friend Liz Potter a ring and talk about zines. That's gonna do it for me, folks. I'm gonna go chow down on a jelly donut. <laughs> Later. This past week, we both received two breathtaking zines in the mail, and both from Liz Potter. We had Liz on in September, but since that time, she's been way busier than all of us put together. So, let's give Liz a call. Hi! <laughs> Hello! <laughs> Welcome back. We had you on in September, I think. So how's it been since then? It's been a series of ups and downs. I think the year has turned into a lot of 
opportunities. Like everybody is trying to uh, figure out ways to do things and include me. So I've got projects and shows and all sorts of stuff. Oh, cool. Good. Nice. So I guess, I mean, you got two new zines that just came out. So we wanted to talk yes. to you about those. And uh, it's a very small club that puts two zines out at a time. But hi. <laughs> <laughs> How, how have you, how's that been working for you? <laughs> I think the uh, motivation behind putting out zines it dictates like how crazy you are about putting them out. Oh, and yeah. so because I'm using zines for future projects, I kind of think of a bigger picture. So it's not just like, oh, I'm going to put a zine out and put it on my Etsy store and sell it. It's like I'm thinking about other opportunities in the future. Like I got invited to do a spring show that's kind of like an art slash gift show and I want to have them available there so oh I'm going to crank out a few more like very soon <laughs> very soon <laughs> great first we want to talk about the on the road with the horizon 202 yes which is an odd name for a zine so I'm assuming that the horizon 202 is maybe the star of the thing here so oh yes what is a horizon 202 because when i first the, read it i thought like okay to root 202 and the horizon now it's probably not right well that's why i put that <laughs> giant picture of the camera on the back because it, it does make sense it's like yeah. that way it's kind of a visual of like oh okay that's what that is so the the horizon 202 is the 1989 version of this russian camera that's a swing lens so it's panoramic but the lens takes pictures it exposes across the scene and okay. so that's that's why sometimes you'll see banding in the sky, in the exposures. And oh, sometimes okay. my exposures will be crazy. Like one side of it will be blown out and then the other side's exposed correctly. So it doesn't bother me because I don't mind a, a quirky camera. Mm -hmm. But other people would rather have like a wide lux or oh, sure. something I can't afford. Yeah, so this is basically <laughs> so, like the Russian version of the wide lux. Exactly. Okay, so which exactly. is like a, a scanning lens. A scanning lens. That's so interesting. It's so weird, but I love it. Yeah, it's like a point-and-shoot panoramic camera. <laughs> so how long does it take the lens to scan from one side to the other? Or does that depend on... What does it depend on? I think, you know, I'm, I haven't tested it without film because um, I forget to do that. But I, I, I mean, you definitely hear it. It's like, and it goes, it like pans across. So yeah, I mean, when you load the film, it's it goes across like a, a curved film plane. Okay. You know, of course, I read up on how to use this, and everybody had different opinions. And <laughs> I tried using the level, and I couldn't... It was showing it using the camera all cockeyed, and I was like, well... I'm following the directions. I should, this should be level. It was not level. So now I just don't even, I just shoot it like. It's almost like Russian cameras have no quality control. <laughs> yeah, I know. Zero. So, and it's also from 1989. I'm like, why do I think this bubble level is going to work? <laughs> So now I finally got it down. And I think the most interesting thing about that camera is that at first I was thinking huge landscapes. Like I, I'm only going to use this for landscapes. And then I tried some closer photos. And the closer shots to me are more interesting. And they're in focus. So now like that tent photo I took yeah. is obviously very close. Yeah, yeah. So was this like a love at first sight camera? Or did it have to like 
prove itself to you? How did that happen? It had to prove itself because I had to figure out the exposure. I still underexpose every once in a while just because I'm too lazy to meet her. I'm just like, I just, <laughs> get, I guess. <laughs> so. And also I was getting so many like really crooked photos. But once I figured it out, I was like, oh, now I love it. And it's very lightweight. It's very easy to tote around. So yeah, I didn't love it at first, but now I do. <laughs> Why the horizon for these particular shots in the zine? Do you think that it would have worked with a normal camera or do you think this is? Some of them might have worked. And I did actually shoot a lot of those with other formats. And so that was kind of interesting to see, like, which format do I like on this? The landscapes are just so huge. I mean, Eric, you shoot a lot of these big, vast yeah. landscapes. And to me, it's so fascinating to get so much in the photo, especially when I compare them to the other formats. The other formats might have a clearer picture, but the panoramic just shows so much. So the, the places in the zine, do you visit these places with like specific shots in mind or did they happen organically as you just bopped around Texas? And Yeah, I, I definitely don't plan out. The places I go, I know are going to be interesting in a photographic way, especially all the camping when I go camping and hiking. So yeah, I don't plot it out. I just always have my cameras with me. Okay. Uh, each photo in the zine has a story written about it. The first one, the Alpine, Texas, this gives the appearance of Alpine being an old ghost town. But you say that they're opening the line again. What's the story here? So the railroad track picture that I have, I moved here three years ago. It wasn't in service and it hadn't been in service for, I think, like seven, eight years or something. It's a, a line that goes from the border of Mexico, I think, all the way up through, it may end up outside of Texas. But anyway, it was for carting cargo. It wasn't. And so they, there was a bridge in Mexico that I think burned down a couple times. Uh, this, I, I don't know if this is accurate information. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I heard. Okay. So they're re, they're rebuilt. They, I think they rebuilt the bridge and now they're, uh, there's like railroad ties out there right now. So I think they're trying to like rebuild the, the tracks to start mm. doing the cargo again. So okay. I'm excited. It's really close to my house. So oh, cool. I'll it, hear it. It, it, looks, yeah. Yeah. it looks so desolate. It's a very desolate yes. looking picture. Yeah. But Alpine's a pretty big town, isn't it? Um, We've got... 6,000 people. Yeah, okay. I mean, and but we also have a small university. So if you take out like, I don't know, 2,000 people from the university. Okay. It's <laughs> like we don't have a, we have one stoplight, but it's just a blinking stoplight. So I don't know if that gives you any indication <laughs> of how small this is. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, and that the rail station, I don't know what the deal is with that building. Yeah. I've been in there and recently, and I think it's because they're doing work on the line, recently it looks like people have taken out all the like debris inside. Hmm. I don't know what they're going to do with that building. I, I hope they don't tear it down. Yeah, it, it's it's a beautiful shot. It reminds me of like a Johnny Cash album or something. It's just a, a really, <laughs> really beautiful shot. It's very Thank Virginia you. looking. Yeah, that, I shoot that all the time. Really? So, okay. Yeah, I've got tons of pictures of it. Oh, cool. But that one's a good one. Yeah, yeah that one's a good one. And so you mentioned earlier the, the Big Bend State Park, uh, Big Bend Ranch State Park tent photo. The one yes. the photo taken from inside your tent. So <laughs> tell us about your tent. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a hiker. I'm a camper. <laughs> I, I was like, tell me about your tent. <laughs> Years ago, I just 
Googled like best gear 2016 and this guy had a list and I just bought everything on the list. <laughs> That's my research. But it, I, what I, I bought it because it was like a backpacking tent and mm -hmm. I don't backpack, but I knew that I might want to. So I was like, well, I better be prepared. So sure. it's tiny. It's supposed to be a two person tent. Maybe your dog could fit in there with you, but it's not, it's a one person tent. It's like a space pod. I love it. Is it a tarp tent? It's a tarp tent. So okay. I just, I don't put the tarp on. I just like the mesh. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's insane. But I mean, I want to do it. <laughs> it's so good. Cause you can see everything. It's way less scary to be in an all mesh tent because if you wake up and hear something, you can look out. You're not under the tarp wondering if it's what is it? Yeah. 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 yeah that is you'll true. know because he'll be right there. You'll see him and smell him. <laughs> exactly. In the description of the of the shot, you mention javelinas. Is that how you pronounce <laughs> Javelinas. Okay. What, what are they? And are they terrifying? I think it depends on who you ask. I don't think they're terrifying. I think they're super cute. But they sort of look like hogs or pigs, but they're from the peccary family. So they're not pigs. Okay. But they don't see very well. And so that's why you can startle them. And that's when they react. So, <laughs> I mean, they don't want to be around you. Sure. Yeah. You know, Ooh. like like most wildlife. Yeah. So they travel in groups called squadrons. Yes. A squadron of <laughs> Yes. Isn't that great? Perfect. That is. So I had a squadron around my tent at, in the middle of the night, and they make this kind of like weird snuffling, snorting, huffing, grunting sound. <laughs> They woke me up because it's, you know, it's the desert. It's so quiet out there. Yeah. So you hear everything. And so I woke up and I could tell they were really close. <laughs> and if I scared them, I was sort of in an area where it, I might have been like semi on a game trail. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Did not want to cause a little stampede mm -hmm. over my tent. No. And I, I get what you're saying about the, about it being mesh and being able to see out because I've, I've had yes. experiences where there are, I don't know, things, maybe humans, yes. probably not, but possibly. And I wouldn't, I can't tell, I can't tell what they are. Exactly. Because I've, you know, and that's terrifying to that me. Is, yeah. That's why I like camping in the desert. Like I'm a little scared of the woods because you can't see anything. Eric, look up baby javelina. Oh my God. Okay. Let's so do this. Cute. Let's look up baby javelina. The baby javelina are so cute. I mean, I don't want to <gasps> stumble. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> see? <gasps> they have little beards. <laughs> yes. So they're called the collared. It's a collared peccary. So they have this kind of collar around their yeah their head yeah they're cool animals amazing um, i think we're gonna have a javelina <laughs> podcast from now on <laughs> we're done with phone photography <laughs> my life is now devoted to javelinas <laughs> <laughs> they're so cute <laughs> it's ridiculous <laughs> they're, they're very cute well, let's talk about big ben yeah. uh, ranch state park and big ben national park uh there, there's a lot of photos of those two places. What keeps you going back to them? Well, in Texas, there's not a lot of public land. And so it's kind of the only areas where I can go, you know, like yeah. I don't, I'm not friends with like ranch owners <laughs> or anything like that where I can camp on their land. 
Ooh, that would be kind of cool, though. <laughs> it would be cool. So the National Park, obviously, it's National Park. It's a lot more developed. It's a little more friendly uh, across the board for different kinds of travelers. Mm-hmm. You know, like RV and, you know, you can just drive around the park and it's still beautiful. You don't have to, you know, camp. Right. The Ranch State Park is a relatively new park. The state of Texas bought huge areas of land that were ranches. And that's why there's so much ranch stuff still in the park. Okay, yeah. I I connect so much to these huge open spaces where there's nothing but me Mm. and the rocks. And I mean, that's why I moved out here. I lived in Austin 30 years and started coming out here and... I knew I had to get out here to be close enough to it to just to drive out whenever I want. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. Uh, the pictures definitely show the vastness of these like open spaces and just living in Los Angeles and then being in quarantine, like looking at your zine, I'm just like, oh my gosh, open space. Look at all this, <laughs> look at all this space. <laughs> I never feel claustrophobic out here because it's just, everything's just so big, yeah. you know, like mm-hmm. the sky is just like, so dominant all the time. Well, uh, that brings us to the the, <laughs> the the what is this? How is this? Your other zine, your smaller zine. How how do we say this? Six six by six. Six by six. Is it just six by That's six? What I, it's six by six. Okay. Six six by six. Okay. Um, you know, I was thinking about that, and I I have to be honest. I think I made that zine just because I wanted to actually make the zine. It was less about the photos okay. than the actual making of the zine. So let's talk about the the feature of this zine is the back cover. I'll describe it. You're looking at the back cover, and it's the back of a Voigtlander. What is that? Perkeo. Perkeo. It sounds good to me. And it's a 120 camera or a 620 camera or whatever. And it has the red window that you would look through to see which shot you're on. And on my copy, I'm on shot 10. (laughs) And this is done through literally a red window that you've managed to adhere to the back cover (laughs) and a piece of backing paper on the opposite page. Explain all of this. It's so amazing. It's so fucking it's cool. It's so great. I'm on shot five, by the way. <laughs> on my- I was trying to think about what made me think of that idea. I think a lot of times I have like hoarded craft supplies everywhere and I'll run across something and, and an idea will immediately pop in my mind. So I found this red film. I think I bought that red film like eight years ago. Oh, wow. And I, I found it and I was like, it immediately made me think of like the the red windows on all those old cameras when I designed the zine you know I had that extra page and it it worked as a perfect way to sandwich that red film in between so I bought one of those leather tools that punches circles oh sure Mm -hmm. yeah so like I hammer that circle out okay (laughs) there's a hundred copies of this you just a hundred times yes and then sewed the other piece on there to, yeah, insane. <laughs> when I don't think of that when I'm making it, like I'll make a couple and I'm like, this is awesome. And then I do a hundred and I'm like, what was I thinking? But... <laughs> so that zine was made, was really basically about what the zine looks like. It's really wonderful. So uh, this tell us about the camera a little bit. I bought that camera. I didn't know what it was. I think I was looking for some other 6x6 camera. Mm, okay. When I was on eBay, I found that camera and I liked the way it looked. So I Googled it to read about it before just totally cold buying it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And 
it had such good reviews as far as like the functionality and the image quality. And it's this small, cute folding camera. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, this is perfect to throw in a backpack or my purse or, you know, it's easy to carry around. Every time I use these old cameras, I have to remember people were using these like no big deal. You know, like I make a big deal out of all these things. And it's like, oh, this was just somebody's like camera. Like they didn't know any different. It wasn't intimidating to them. Mm -hmm. So if they can do it. Yeah, yeah the, pictures. the pictures came out very well. Very, very well. Thank you. So you were saying that you were kind of getting away from square format. <laughs> yeah. And you know, here's a whole zine of square format shots. What's, uh, <laughs> how'd that happen? So I shot with the Holga for so long, and it was square format. And I was like, I'm over it. I'm not going to do square. I hate it. It's terrible. And then as soon as I got that camera, uh, of course, I bought the camera knowing it was six by six. Yeah. It was like an old friend came back into my life. (laughs) I think the familiarity of framing that way, I didn't realize how significant that was in my brain memory, you know? So it was so easy to suddenly frame like that again that it just felt like my old friend was back, except it wasn't a crappy Holga. It was like something that was actually going to be in focus. (laughs) Yeah, six by six. I'm back. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so when you approach a scene and you've got your your gaggle of cameras with you and you've got the choice between the panorama and square, which are kind of like almost opposite formats, what is it about a scene that makes you choose one over the other? I don't know if I've really been choosing lately, which is, okay. um, I think I just shoot it all. And then I I look at it later. But I mean, of course, there are some shots... Um, that I specifically do square or specifically do panoramic. But if I've got both cameras and I want it and I don't have a strong feel of which one I'm going to like better, I'll shoot both. You're carrying all those cameras. You may as well use them. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. There's something about the limitation of square that just is wonderful. Yeah. It makes you really focus on that one thing. This is volume one. We did kind of mention that you're, there's going to be more coming. So are you already working on it? Oh, I was working on it before this was even, I even got the fir- first one in the mail. <laughs> so I've got a volume two in the works, but I need to shoot some more. So yeah, I did the volumes because it was sort of like a personal, not even a challenge. It was just, it was a project that I knew would be fun to just kind of keep going. And doing these really limited numbers, it makes it pretty easy. Yeah. I mean, I just have to have six shots. You're building it rather than taking things away to make it. Yes. Okay. That's a perfect, yeah, that's a perfect way to describe that. And because I just started shooting this camera, I didn't have a lot to go from. I just happened to like enough of the photos to feel good enough about, you know, publishing them. Yeah. And I think that's why I really like zines is that it doesn't have to be like, this is what's going into the museum. It's just kind of like these, they're like more casual collections. Each one doesn't have to be standalone fantastic. It can, if it's in a group of photos, sometimes it's just adding to the whole group. It is. That's why I like zines over prints. Yes. yeah, Yeah, exactly. So new zines will come out soon. Okay. Nice. Good. We will definitely plug them and be all about them. Of course. Absolutely. Thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you so much again. We really, really appreciate it. 
<laughs> no, thank you. Well, have a great weekend. Yeah, yeah you too. You too. <laughs> All, right, All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. In the early history of color emulsions, film manufacturers were just happy to get some sort of color action going. But through the 1940s and into the 50s, color photography became surprisingly accurate, being able to reproduce colors on film as they appeared in real life. This accurate representation fell upon not just the emulsion, but on the print process as well. This accuracy relied upon calibration. The reds had to be red, the blues had to be blue, and the skin tones had to be, well, white. Of course, they didn't really have to be, but Kodak's calibration system made sure that they were. Kodak noticed early on that the skin tones of the models they were using were sometimes too blush or sometimes too pale, depending upon the lighting, the emulsion, and the printing. Realizing that a standard was needed, they grabbed their favorite model, a woman by the name of Shirley Long, took a few photos of her, and color matched the prints in the lab. What they produced was soon known as the Shirley card, a rudimentary color print showing the brunette Shirley in a red cloak holding a blue folder. It was from this card that lab techs would calibrate their prints. The Shirley card would evolve over the next couple of decades. In 1960, Shirley, now replaced with a dirty blonde in a strapless red dress, gazed off into the distance. A gray scale was printed below her portrait. By 1966, Shirley, now a redhead, stared directly into the camera. She wore white gloves and a black sleeveless blouse. Color and grayscale charts were on either side of her. As the years went by, the various Shirleys changed in hairstyle and dress. The color charts evolved as well. But along the way, and well into the 90s, Shirley was always white and always a woman. How the Shirley card system worked was simple. Kodak sent their labs a printed Shirley card, as well as a negative, the the labs could print themselves. Once they matched their print to Kodak's print, the color process was calibrated. And this was a wonderful and foolproof process if the subjects being photographed were white. If the machines were calibrated to Shirley, light skin tones looked pretty normal. But if the photo was of a non-white person, their features would be lost. The portraits taken of people with darker skin would often portray them as having a blackface appearance, with their eyes and teeth gleaming white while their face turned charcoal dark. This wasn't a limitation of the chemical process, but the calibration process. It was the 1950s, so figuratively, everything was calibrated for whiteness. In Kodak's case, it was literally calibrated for whiteness. This reinforced the idea that white was normal. Hell, the word normal was even printed on many of the Shirley cards. According to multiple Kodak chemists and film designers interviewed in the 1980s and 90s, color film could have been designed to better handle darker skin tones. However, Kodak believed that there simply wasn't a market need for this. Their emulsion could have been more sensitive to colors that make up yellow, brown, and reddish skin tones, but Kodak's target customers were white. This doesn't mean that non-white people didn't take photos, but that Kodak, along with essentially every other company in the Western world, didn't really consider non-white people to be any part of their customer base. This was still in the era of segregation. In many parts of the United States, black people couldn't stay in the same motels as whites, couldn't drink from the same water fountains, couldn't use the same bathrooms. And this segregation was a large factor driving the lack of color diversity in film emulsions. Generally speaking, white people weren't usually photographed with black people. This was due not to just segregation in the South, but also to racist social norms in the North. The vast majority of group shots were either all white or all black, and since most white people looked normal, Kodak probably didn't even consider this to be an issue. Photographed separately, some adjustments could be made by the photographers to overcome the limitations of calibration. Special lighting methods could be used, but most 
most of this knowledge came from personal trial and error. While there were literally thousands of books and pamphlets available in the mid to late 20th century, very few, and we're talking almost zero, covered lighting non-white people. Photographers were left to sort it out on their own. Though it was likely mentioned prior to this, the first instruction that we could find on it came in 1979 in an article in the San Francisco Examiner about just general photography. Even in the early versions of Ansel Adams' zone system descriptions, his definitions noted average skin and darker skin, again, reinforcing the idea that white was normal. Kodak obviously made changes to their emulsions in the decades since, and there were three key issues that helped drag Kodak forward. First was school picture day. In the 1950s, most school photos were group photos of classes, and while many schools were heavily segregated, quite a few weren't. That largely depended upon how racist the white citizens were feeling in the school district. School photo day was an easy day for photographers when they were shooting portraits of individual students one by one. They could change the lighting a bit if necessary to compensate for lighter or darker skin. The issue arose in the class photos showing the entire group of students standing together. Here it became obvious that the prints were calibrated with a bias towards whiteness, as it failed to capture the the details of non-white students' faces. This was likely where the first complaint stemmed from, though Kodak did literally nothing to address it, let alone fix the problems. The second wave of complaints came to Kodak not from portrait photographers, but from a chocolate company and a wood furniture manufacturer. And it was this that got Kodak's attention. As Earl Cage, head of Kodak's color photo studio in the 60s and 70s, later recalled... In the 4x5, 5x7, or even 8x10 color transparency area that manufacturers of furniture were using to display their wares and and to advertise their furniture for catalogs, they were having a good deal of difficulty in demonstrating the subtle differences of certain woods. Now, whether it was maple versus oak or a couple of dark woods, this couldn't be distinguished in the photographs. This was also about the same time that we got some interesting observations from chocolate manufacturers who, in displaying Whitman's chocolate, or whatever the names were in any case, the subtle variations between the dark and bittersweet and milk chocolate weren't as discernible, so some modifications were tried, and consequently, my little department became quite fat with chocolate, because what was in front of the camera was consumed at the end of the shoot. As Kodak worked to color correct the various browns of chocolate and wood, they also noticed that it corrected the various browns of skin tones. Imagine that. Earl Cage went on to admit, It is fascinating that this has never been said before, because it was never black flesh that was addressed in a serious problem that I knew of at the time. It's clear that Kodak received criticism decades before the complaints from chocolate and wood furniture manufacturers, but it seems that by the 70s, those early complaints about the poor rendering of brown skin tones were long forgotten in the Kodak color labs. And while Kodak began to change their emulsions and calibration to better work with the brown tones of chocolate and wood, there was a third factor driving their efforts competition with Fujifilm. In the 80s and 90s, Kodak badly wanted to break into the Japanese market, which was dominated by Fuji. The color film produced by Fuji reproduced darker skin tones much better than Kodak's could. It was Fuji color film rather than Kodak color that professional photographers turned to when photographing people of color. Fuji's professional line was designed to handle brown skin, while Kodak's just wasn't. This saw Kodak turn to skin color preference tests. They would literally pull people in different markets to figure out their skin color biases. All across the world, their tests had customers selecting which skin tones of various races they saw as preferable. In every arena, lighter skin was always preferred. This likely due to white-based American and European advertising and marketing, which has spread all over the world. Kodak used this data to figure out the skin color biases in various parts of the world and made film to conform to these biases. This practice even had a name, optimum reproduction, which is obviously a different philosophy than accurate reproduction. Here, the skin tones of the print were calibrated to match the biases of the customers, rather than how the skin tones looked in real life. This began an era for Kodak where they actually formed 
formulated and sold subtly different emulsions to different parts of the world under the same branding. In other words, the film that Kodak shipped to the United States produced different skin tones from the film they shipped to Asia or India. For example, the Kodak Gold that a mother picked up in Nairobi captured darker skin tones much better than the Kodak Gold that my mom picked up at Rite Aid. By the early 80s, Kodak was sorting out the browns of their professional emulsions, though the consumer market would take a decade longer. Veracolor 3, a wonderful portrait film, was immediately recognized for its ability to accommodate darker skin tones. In the 90s, Kodak Gold Max was able to do so as well, though the marketing shied away from drawing attention to skin color. Kodak announced it as an emulsion that could photograph the details of a dark horse in low light. This weird little dog whistle let photographers know that it could handle darker human skin tones as well. The new card featured a white blondish woman in a black dress flanked by an Asian woman in a gray dress and a black woman in a white blouse. All three seemed to be looking in different directions much like Kodak. This all came together in the 90s, following the trend as the white-based marketing world finally realized that their customers weren't all white people. This saw the rise of multiracial ads led by companies like Benetton. Along with that came the complete realignment of the very concept of normal skin tones. Products like Band-Aids, Barbie dolls, crayons, and makeup were retold and renamed to reflect the actual population rather than the prevailing biases of the population. So was Kodak racist? Here's the place where we might placate the fragile white man and explain that Kodak wasn't racist. It was just a different time in our history. That is true to an extent. It was a different time in our history. But it was also a very racist time in our history. It's clear that Kodak knew about the problem with darker skin tones in the 1950s. They failed so badly at addressing it that by a decade later, the film designer running their color photo studio wasn't even aware that an issue had once been raised. And that itself was a huge issue. Through the 1960s, Kodak was accused of racial bias in their workplace hiring practices. They even made some changes after some massive protests in Rochester 1967. More recently, during the Black Lives Matter protests following the murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer, most companies at least paid a quick bit of lip service to the Black Lives Matter movement. All major film manufacturers, Ilford, Fuji, Foma, Berger, showed their support in one way or another. Kodak refused, explaining that there was a diversity of opinions within the company. While Kodak Alaris, that's Kodak's film division, might have a diversity of opinions about Black Lives Mattering, there's not really a diversity of any kind on their current board of directors, which is made up entirely of white people, five men and two women. Now, again, we're not necessarily saying that Kodak is racist, but then we have to acknowledge that our society is. Simply going along with the flow is a racist act when that flow is biased towards whiteness. This kind of racism is known as disconscious racism. It's not the overt KKK kind of racism, but it's not unconscious racism stemming from ignorance either. Disconscious racism goes along with the flow of white privilege, even knowing they probably shouldn't. The term disconscious racism has largely been replaced by implicit bias, which is the same thing, though it sounds much less racist to our fragile little ears. It was Kodak's disconscious racism that literally overshadowed black faces throughout the later half of the 20th century. Some argue that it was the limitations of chemical technology that held Kodak back. This doesn't explain why Fuji didn't have the same problems. It also doesn't explain why Kodak didn't see this as an issue until a chocolate company raised their concerns. Others argue that Kodak was simply a product of the era, that all companies were at least a little racist, and this is undoubtedly true. But it was more important for Kodak to get this right than almost any other company. Whether Kodak understood this or not, they had a responsibility to history. The vast majority of our cultural visual memories of the latter half of the 20th century 
century come mostly from Kodak, while other companies such as Coca-Cola or Ford could simply admit their past racism and move on, Kodak's culpability has been preserved on celluloid for future generations. Our history and our culture have been forever distorted by Kodak's racial ignorance. Much of our information on this has come from the paper Looking at Shirley, the Ultimate Norm by Lorna Roth. We'll have a link to the original in our show notes. So last episode, we mentioned that we were running a little short on zines, and you folks have come through. This episode, we've got a zine for you uh, called Seascapes, and Vanya has this review for us. 2020 Seascapes is a collective of local Sydney photographers documenting during the lockdown. This is incredible. These guys basically grew a community where they could support one another through photography. They could talk gear, share stories, and laugh while shooting for the zine. Most of the images are in the same locations, but with new eyes on these photos, I had no idea. It really showcases how unique everyone sees a place, and I love that every photograph is titled, detailed, with the camera they shot, and emulsion. I see some familiar names, as well as some new ones. There is a little intro to every artist, and I really thought it was a nice touch. It felt familiar that even though I'm on the other side of the world, we are all going through this pandemic together, and a lot of what they were experiencing, I was as well. I feel lucky to have gotten a copy of the zine, and the idea of having a group zine showcasing a collective of photographers is just everything that I absolutely love about this film community. Thank you so much for the zine. I will cherish it. I recommend picking up Seascapes. You can follow them on Insta. They're at pixels.grain. If you go to their Instagram, they'll have a link to their blog where you can read about all the artists buy zines and see what other projects they're working on. Thank you. If you'd like to support our podcast, you can head over to patreon.com slash all through a lens. We've got bonus episodes, full length interviews, and a growing number of things. And this episode's featured patron is someone that we're all really familiar with. She was a guest on our podcast and we're in contact with her basically daily. It is Kate, <laughs> Kate Miller Wilson. She honestly needs no introduction. If you are not familiar with her work, check her out at Kate Miller Wilson. I don't know. How, how would you describe her? Stunning. St- I have. Yeah, I, I mean, she's amazing. Portraits doesn't really begin to touch what she does. It's on a completely other level than most people are, are shooting. I would say so. Kate is awesome. Yes. And on top of all that, Kate is awesome. She's incredibly supportive of so many people. She's kind of the biggest cheerleader everybody's got and it's it's wonderful we're very blessed and honored to know her all right so let's remind everybody what the question is for next episode well the next episode's question is what is the most unique thing that you've done with the plastic canisters that 35 millimeter film comes in you know those black or semi-transparent plastic jar things tell us weird tales i know everybody has stories about this what what they do what they've done with them you know give us the weird shit Or, you know, if it's going to be normal, that's fine, too. And that's about all the podcasts we've got for you today. Is you have anything else you want to say before we peace on out of here? 
Yes. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail. And we're allthroughalens on Twitter. Vanya is at surfmartian. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers. Both on Instagram. <laughs> and speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag yourself, hashtag allthroughalenspodcast to be featured. We also do a Spotify playlist for each episode. So check those out and see what we're listening to. Just search allthroughalens. You can also find our episodes on Spotify as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever the hell else you find podcasts. Subscribe and leave us a review. The music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. And thank you all so, so much for listening. We love you, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. But Vanya? Yes? You want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go! Yeah. Yeah, that I think the scariest part of spiders is when you see one and then you don't see it anymore. Because right now, I see him. He's there and I'm here and I'm okay with that. I think I can live with that. But if he leaves and I don't know where he went, I'm not going to be okay with that. <laughs>